a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Ephesians, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 16 this morning. But thus far in our current series, we have seen where change meets our choices, where doctrine meets our mission, and where relationships meet discipleship. Each of these issues on the list that I curated is meant to help you think through your very life as your faith meets every day. The practical reality of the daily life is where your faith in Jesus Christ is meant to be applied, to be lived out. And the vision that you have for your life should be shaped, quite frankly, by your faith in Jesus Christ. Many people compartmentalize their faith from their everyday and you treat faith as though it's the religious aspect of your life. And, but every day in the physical, real world is a disconnected reality. But God is the Lord over all of it. And today we're going to talk about that aspect and speaking of prayer meeting the action of our lives and prayer being the catalyst to create action in our lives. And the question you have to ask yourself whenever you talk about prayer is, does your prayer life prepare you to live for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does your prayer life equip you for a life of action in regard to all of the topics that we have addressed thus far and beyond? We must not be like those people who treat prayer as some type of rote activity disconnected from reality. Rather, Christians must have their prayer lives shaped by the revelation of God that we find in Scripture as we seek to apply it to every situation all of the time. We must realize that prayer is, quite frankly, the equipping ground for God to use us to change the world around us. So often we look at life and many people will say, well, I want to change the world. I want to be used by God to change the world. I can tell you, quite frankly, the only people that ever have any impact in this world are the people that begin with themselves. You will never change the world around you unless you are changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somebody famously said that the only people that actually change the world are the people that change the very square feet around their own feet. And so many people view prayer as a religious activity that finds us, quite frankly, passive, asking God to intervene. And afterward, after our prayer, we often wait for God to supernaturally work as we sit on the sideline with no activity. That's not the design of prayer in our lives. We don't just sit there and lethargically, apathetically ask God to work and then just say, okay, now it's God's responsibility. You are going to be the conduit through which most of the answer to prayer is going to come. God is not in heaven saying, oh, you're totally disconnected from reality. You just treat me like a genie and I'll do whatever you say. Nine times out of ten, and it's usually more than that, God answers prayer through the very activity of your life. And it is when we are living a vibrant life of faith in Jesus Christ that we are going to see God work in ways we could not imagine Him working. Sure, there are situations in which you are going to be helpless, but there are no situations in life where prayer excuses inactivity, where prayer excuses, quite frankly, faithlessness. Rather, prayer is the environment and the posture by which God equips you to live a life of active faith 
with the confidence that God is working through your actions to bring about his very will. Pastor John Piper often refers to prayer as the hammer that drives the nail of God's will in our lives. For that to be true, though, it requires a life of action that is going to necessitate a move of God that demands that prayer moves us to work in this world courageously for the glory of God in all things. So understand, number one this morning, prayer is the posture of faith. Prayer is the posture of faith. Look in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And what I want to do is I really want to connect these three realities for you to apply to not just your prayer life, but I actually want you to apply your prayer life to your everyday life. Faith and salvation are most clearly expressed in a vibrant prayer life. He speaks of faith then he speaks of salvation. And what you need to understand is that the truth of both of those things in your life, faith and salvation, are most clearly going to be seen in the effectiveness and the activity of your prayer life. I think the full armor of God from Ephesians 6 is helpful in actually understanding the role of prayer in the life of a Christian. If you look at verse 18, verse 18, when it begins to speak about prayer, is the application of all of the full armor of God. And through that, we can clearly see prayer is not a passive activity that cultivates a lethargic waiting for the activity of God in your life. Instead, the way that the text presents it, prayer is the equipping ground for the mission that God has for you to engage. Prayer is where you actually prepare to need the full armor of God in your life. Faith and salvation, then, are foundational elements of your prayer life. And I think this text, these three verses, help us understand prayer in a clear and active way. Michael Reeves wrote that prayer is the primary way true faith expresses itself. What do you think that would be? You see, the specific type of shield that Ephesians chapter 6 is talking about, when he says, take up the shield of faith. I'm sure you've seen all types of shields, but the specific term used here for shield actually refers to a very large shield used by soldiers that could be joined together to form a protective wall for archers to stand behind. And so these very large shields could be anywhere from three feet to six feet. And the soldiers would stand and oftentimes in battle, they would lock them side by side and archers would stand behind them and hurl their arrows over the shieldsmen at the enemy. But it didn't just serve that purpose. It served a second purpose. Those would also be used as they could be lifted up together to protect the archers behind them from oncoming arrows so that they would have a defense. And so when we think about our prayer lives, we need to understand that your prayer is never going to happen in your life without faith being a catalyst for it. And when you take up that shield that is defensive, that shield that also gives opportunity for offensive, there is an assumption 
that it is not the preparing ground for you to do nothing. There's an assumption that there is a battle to be fought. There's an assumption that there is a war going on. And before he even gets to the actual activity of prayer, he equips you so that you can have an effective prayer life, so that you can have a relevant prayer life. It is an active kind of faith that is wielded through thoughts that lead you into the applied atmosphere of prayer in your life. Faith in Christ, then, is a realization of my ultimate inability to change anything that matters. That doesn't go against what I said about activity. Prayer is an atmosphere where your inability is postured under God's ability to move you. Faith then puts you in that posture as you realize that without the armor of God, you are helpless. You are vulnerable. The enemy isn't going to fight very hard to defeat you. You're just going to be defeated. Because without faith, you're living defeated. But the shield of faith is a primary element because it is an attestation to your inability, but a statement about God's ability in your life. It is God who gives you the equipping to live a life by which you are prepared for battle every single day. And that inability is revealed through the sword of the Spirit. If you're going to take up a shield, well, you're going to need a sword. And by God's grace, not only does he gift you faith. You know, you didn't well up faith inside of you. Scripture doesn't present it that way. Scripture presents faith as a gift. You didn't give that to yourself. God did. And in giving you that gift, how do you know about it? Well, that's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Scripture is treated as the sword because you're not going to put your shield down just because you pick up your sword. You're going to more confidently advance towards the enemy because you are both protected by your shield and you are equipped to fight the enemy with the sword of the Spirit. And here's the great news of God's grace. You don't build either one of those things, do you? Faith and sword, the shield and the sword, faith and the word are both graciously given to us by God himself. Therefore, as you receive God's revelation of scripture, God leads you to faith in the gospel. And then through that faith, he transforms your life and then puts you in that posture of dependence on God that is most clearly expressed in what verse 18 talks about as you pray at all times. How does verse 16 begin? In all circumstances. What does verse 18 modify prayer with? At all times. And so in all circumstances and at all times, you are living in a posture of continued dependency on God and your dependence on God is, no, is never more clearly expressed than when you are in an environment and posture of prayer. Look at Luke 18, 1. Jesus begins a parable, and I'm not going to read the whole parable, but he begins it by stating the necessity of continual prayer. He summarizes. He says you ought always to pray and not lose heart. Do you know what there's an assumption there? There's an assumption of discouragement. There's an assumption that you're going to be tempted to stop praying. You don't just pray one time and then move on and say, well, I prayed. <laughs> now he's got to work. 
No, actually, the parable in Luke 18, the application of the parable is that you should pray so much that you fear you're getting on God's nerves. It's a continual thing. It's a thing where you go to God over and over and over. But the good news of God's grace is he never tires of hearing your prayers. He never tires of hearing your pleading. He never tires of equipping you. He wants you in a posture of dependency because a posture of dependency is the only posture by which you have the shield and by which you are wielding the sword that he has provided for you. Why? Because prayer presupposes... Both the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God to his promises. Prayer presupposes. Prayer pre. The P's get difficult after a minute, all right? Prayer presupposes that God can be trusted. It's not this activity by which you're like, I hope I can trust him. The way scripture treats prayer. As though it is a posture you go to where you've already made the decision. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. I'm not faithful. I'm not trustworthy. So I need someone who's faithful, someone who is trustworthy. But then there's also an element where someone who is powerful enough to do something that matters. And all of those things are found in God. And he works and he loves and he moves, but it is not simply he has been faithful. He has been trustworthy. See, those things are true. And you show up to prayer because of those things. Because scripture presents a God who made promises and fulfilled them. And the climax of all of his promises, of course, are the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is a God, 2 Corinthians says, and all of his yeses are found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he has been faithful, but here's the great news. It's better than that. He will be. That since Jesus Christ rose from the dead, since God has saved, since salvation has now come to all people for you to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is an eschatological reality. In other words, a reality about the future. To where it says, when I kneel in prayer, I don't just trust that God has worked. I don't just trust that there is a kind of worldly trust that we have. God will work all things to his glory because he will be faithful to all of the promises that he has set forward in Jesus Christ. And it's not just a generalized thing where it's like, yeah, he's faithful to everyone, which is true. But guess what? It's a personal faith. Prayer is a posture by which you make the proclamation, God will be faithful to me. And it's the most personal proclamation of your faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, if you neglect prayer, you are neglecting the activity that will strengthen you to withstand and endure in life. In other words, what the text tells us is you won't make it without prayer. You won't endure. Prayer is a posture of dependency that really expresses three things. You can write these down if you want to. Prayer is a posture of dependency that expresses faith. That's the first one. Protects the mind. That's the second one. And prepares for battle. That's the third one. It expresses faith, protects the mind, 
and prepares for battle. I think many people in the life of discipleship apply the first two. Because you want to show your faith and you want to receive the protection. But so often what we don't do is make that third leap is that there's an advance that the king wants us to make for his kingdom. And so it prepares me for a battle. And what that assumes is, the full armor of God assumes this, there is a battle to fight. This is the real stuff of life, friend. Jesus treated it as such in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where the Lord's Prayer is, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But the verses previous to the Lord's Prayer are often passed over by us, and it's why prayer seems irrelevant, I think. And it's also why our prayers sound like we're evoking some type of magic spell. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 7. When you pray, sounds like instructions to follow, doesn't it? There's an assumption that you're going to. And then it's also always going to give me instructions on how to do that. That's really good news. You want to know why? I don't know how to pray, do you? I don't just naturally know how to sit in a room and talk to people that aren't there. Now, some of you do, and that's, you should be under a doctor's care, okay? I'm just going to be honest, all right? If sitting in a room and talking to people that aren't there happens naturally to you, we will refer you out, all right? <laughs> that wasn't in the first service. <laughs> Just came up with that one fresh. When you pray, Jesus says, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. That liberated me. I grew up in a tradition uh, where people prayed some, some weird sounding stuff. Thou most gracious of heavenliest of fathers in the heavens and the heavens of the realms of the seventh heavens. Thou art faithful and just. Thou art virtuous and holy in all things to thou art the fatherest of my fathers. And I always wondered, do you talk in King James English after you're done praying in King James English? It's the strangest thing. Right? Be liberated if there's this temptation to impress with your verbiage in prayer. Jesus himself tells us, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. God isn't impressed with you. That's why Jesus had to die for you. So your prayers don't need to be eloquent magic formulas where you think you're going to say magic words. It's going to get God to do something. It's not how he does it. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. They won't be. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. I love that. I love that. Because it's, it's the truth of a loving father. My children, even though I wish they would, they don't treat me like a king. I don't understand it. So when they have a need or when they have a request for me, they don't come into my, my, the room that I'm in, wherever it is, and say, Oh, holiest of fathers, may I come into your presence? They don't do any type of ornate asking. They don't heap up a bunch of, you know, phrases where it's like they're building up my ego. You know, they don't do that. You know, you know, my kids don't even say daddy sometimes. They just, hey! <laughs> All right. No. My kids, when they have a request, I don't always say yes. Sometimes I say no, but they don't build me up for the request. They just make the request. You want to know why they do that? Because they know I care. There's a glad assumption. By the way, fathers, your children need this glad assumption. There's a glad assumption 
that if they have an actual need, I am more than willing to move heaven and earth to meet their need. And so when they have a request, they just assume I want to do something for them because I do. You know, that is the same thing the father wants from you. He wants you to assume he cares. He wants you to assume he loves you. He wants you to assume that if you have a genuine need, that you will always find a father that will move heaven and earth to meet that need. But he also wants you to assume that he is wiser than you. And so when you ask for gummy bears for dinner, he might say no. <laughs> but that's the assumption that he knows what's best. And then Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When he said don't pray like Gentiles, you know in the New Testament the word Gentile is a synonym for unbeliever. So what he says is, don't pray like someone who doesn't have faith. Take up the shield of faith first. Then pray like this. And the key is, this is no magic mantra. There's only honestly coming before God with all that you know about him and all that you know about yourself and all that you know of your sin and offering it over to him. The great reformer John Calvin summarized the Lord's prayer this way. First, John Calvin points that the Lord's Prayer expresses and begins with a fear of God. Prayer begins, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. A assumption of his power, an assumption of his sovereignty, a knowledge that he is the holy one that you need. And he says, and then it moves to an understanding of spiritual insufficiency on your part. Lord, I need you to work for me. Lord, I need you to move for me. Lord, I need you to forgive me. Lord, I need you to provide for me, not just physical blessings. Lord, I need you to keep me from evil because I'm quick to run to it. Lord, I need your power to forgive others because of your power to forgive me. I'm insufficient without him. But then note, it concludes, Calvin says, with restful trust, yet confident Hope, deliver us from evil. He is the one with the strength. He is the one that we need to move. Think through what the Lord's Prayer says. When I was a young disciple of Christ, I was taught the ACTS model of prayer. It's an acronym, A-C-T-S, and I found it to this day to be effective. It's a great training tool. Adoration is the A Confession is the C. Thanksgiving is the T. Supplication is the S. Adoration is you coming into the presence of God and saying, He is holy. It's you getting yourself into the right position. It's a worshipful position where you realize He is not someone to trifle with. I'm in the presence of God. I better be prepared with my prayer. I better know who I'm talking to. If my kids come into my presence and they are disrespectful to me, or my wife, they're not going to get the good thing they want. They're going to get the backhand they don't want. Your prayers must begin with respect and then confession because when I realize whose presence I am, do you realize I've never gone to God in prayer and realized how great I am? 
Lord, ain't I great? Aren't you lucky to talk to me? No, my adoration of God reveals my sin. And so I confess my sin because if I am faithful to confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then once I have dealt with that, man, I'm thankful. Thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for being so good to me. You know, God has been really good to me. And I tell him that all the time and he likes to hear it. And then finally, supplication, make your request known. The problem with much of your prayer life, not that there isn't ever an instance by which you go before him and say, God, help. There are many times over the many years of my children's lives where they've just yelled out, Daddy, help. But rather the normal activity of prayer should not begin God give. Many of you, that's why your prayers are unsatisfying because all of your prayers are, Lord, I want, Lord, I need, God, change me, God, do for me, God, feed me, I'm hungry, change my diaper, Lord. You know who thinks like that? An infant. Your prayers should outgrow infancy to a place where you can talk to your God as he deserves to be talked to. Prayer serves as a model then of preparation and reaction that is ongoing every day of my life in all circumstances from verse 16. It's a helpful reminder that this is the life of a Christian. There are no off days. There are no moments where you put the shield of faith down because the fiery darts of the enemy are coming and you need God to strengthen you. You need God to protect you. You need God to bless you. Yes, you need God to equip you over and over to fight the Christian. Fight, fight. Prayer then is the preparing grounds for what is ahead. Number two this morning, understand action is the response to faith-filled prayer. As I said, you don't just sit there lethargically waiting. You move. Prayer moves you. You know, action begins in the mind. There's a direct connection between the way that you think and the way that you pray. You know that, right? That's why verse 17 calls it the helmet of salvation. When you pray, you enter the field of salvation. And the great thing that salvation protects is the battlefield of the mind. Because your mind is the source of most of your problems. Your mind is a source of temptation. Your mind is a source of depression. Your mind is a source of discouragement. Your mind is a source of doubt. None of those things are a fruit of the Spirit. The helmet of salvation is a picture of a Roman soldier's helmet worn in battle to protect the head from the broadsword in combat. Your mind then must be understood as the beginning point of faith based on the revelation of God's word. Everything about your life begins on the battlefield of the mind. And salvation, according to this text then, transforms your brain to live a life of faith in a world cursed by sin. The helmet of salvation protects the mind, but it also prepares your mind to live out your faith in Jesus because that's where repentance starts. You've never repented of any sin that didn't start in your mind. Of course, you've also never given in to any sin that didn't begin in your mind. <laughs> repentance begins with the way that you think about your sin. 
and then leads you to make the choice to turn away and choose to live by faith. Choice, choose. Again, you cannot disconnect this from verse 18. The helmet of salvation is a direct path to the environment of prayer. Those flaming darts that verse 16 we're talking about, they are from Satan and are always going to be targeted at the way you think. John 15, 4 directs us to abide in Christ. Jesus speaking to his disciples, abide in me, I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, how do you think abiding in Christ works? It's not some pie in the sky, mystical reality. No, it starts in the way that you think. I'm connected to Christ. I must live connected to Christ. We abide by receiving scripture, responding in prayer, then walking by faith. That's the process. That is the process by which the fruit of salvation in your life is going to be produced. Those flaming darts of Satan are not extinguished in a static life, unmoved life. Rather, prayer cultivates a dynamic and moving thought process that produces action in your life. It's about hearing and doing. The helmet of salvation leads you to take up that weapon again, the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. You know, the Holy Spirit gave Paul a lot of wisdom. That's why these texts are so valuable, but it's also why they must be studied so that they can be understood better. That verse 17, where he says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Usually, in the New Testament, when you see the, the word word, <laughs> it's the term logos, which is a general revelation. It's the same one from John 1 that calls Jesus the logos of God, the ultimate revelation of God, an overarching view of God. Do you know Paul doesn't use that term here in verse 17? He's not talking about a general revelation, which is the word of God. It's the term rima. Rima means specific revelation. It's the word for specific words or terms. And that's vital for you to understand because there's a way of mistaking the Bible as though it is some type of good luck charm. We get superstitious about our Bibles. If I drive with it, maybe I won't get a speeding ticket. You know, if the cop sees it on the dashboard, maybe he'll just let me go with a warning. All right. I don't think that's an effective strategy, by the way. But what Paul is saying is it's not just a general thing that you hold on to and receive. Rather, it is a specific thing that you must receive and know. You memorize it. You know it. You study it. Because a sword in the hands of an untrained soldier is almost worthless. He doesn't know the technique. He doesn't know how to swing it. He doesn't know how to use it in a precise and effective manner. But when you know the rima, when you know the specific words, when you can quote chapter and verse, when you memorize scripture, when you know the precepts of God's word through good inductive Bible study, then you are a skilled swordsman. And you don't just have a sword. You know how to swing a sword. 
Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You want to know why he says intentions of the heart? He's not separating out your brain and your heart. I don't know if you know anything about biology. You don't think with your heart. You think with your brain. And why does he say heart? Because in that culture, as in all culture, when you tell somebody to have heart, unless you're at the cardiologist, you're not talking about their actual physical heart. Now, when you tell somebody to have heart, you're talking about courage. You're talking about the core of who they are. You're talking about everything that they really believe in life. And so he would say your mind and your heart, because he's saying what you think has to translate into how you actually live. I had a church history professor. I loved him. His name was Dr. Deemer. He's gone on to be in heaven. But I remember one day we were having some devotional time in class and Dr. Deemer was asked a devotional question from a student. He was a pastor as well as a professor. And the teacher said, Dr. Deemer, when we're talking about devotions, what's the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge? You ever had that conversation with anybody? I love Dr. Deemer. He, he was a smart guy. He said, about 13 inches. <laughs> his point was the heart knowledge isn't about feeling heart knowledge is about the core of who you are this is where heart knowledge is it's all still in your mind we can sometimes fight intellectualism in the church to the extent where Christians become thoughtless people who just act on emotion and feeling your mind is the most important tool that you have for your life with Jesus Christ because through it you receive the word through it you wield the word and through it you connect with your creator through prayer the sword of the spirit must be effective in combat therefore you must know how to wield it in battle this is why scripture fills our minds for response in prayer that leads to a life by God's design this is about the marriage of prayer and action Michael Reeves once wrote prayerlessness always goes hand in hand with a lack of Christian integrity See, integrity isn't solely about what goes on in your quiet time. No, Christian integrity is where that starts, but integrity is what's seen in your everyday life. It's the question of who are you really? And that's not just seen 15 to 20 minutes a day. That's seen all day, every day. And what Michael Reeves is really saying is prayerlessness is a revelation of false faith. Prayerlessness is a revelation of faithlessness. Christian integrity is revealed as you wield the sword in your life. In Luke chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And the context of that is he's telling a parable about always being ready when the master comes to you to make a request. There are no off days. You stay prepared. But as it is the same phrase that you find in 1 Peter chapter 1. Where Peter, and it is translated in the English, prepare your minds. Peter's speaking of combat as a way of fighting. So why is it translated that way? Well, in the King James English, we have a King James Version. It'll say, gird your loins. I don't know if you know that, but nobody walked in wearing loincloths by God's grace this morning. All right, that would have been a weird conversation. 
But what gird your loins means is in that age, they would often wear loincloths because Levi's hadn't been invented yet. Neither had Dockers. And so they would have these long robes that were loincloths and gird your loins meant right before you run into battle, all of the soldiers would take the long hem and tie it around their waist so that nothing would trip them up as they're sprinting towards the enemy to fight. And so when he says stay dressed for action, that's what he's saying. When he says prepare your mind, he's saying the exact same thing. It is a phrase for people who are ready to fight the fight that God has for them to fight. And he says you must always be prepared for it. Because I have spent so much of my ministry talking to people on the worst days of their lives. And so often, sadly, they're not ready. They're not ready. And that's when those SOS prayers start, isn't it? That's when those emergency calls to God begin. God move, God work, God do. And you know, our God is so gracious. He responds to those. I've been there. God is so gracious that when I wasn't prepared, he still was. But on the worst days of somebody's life, People look at me and they say, why didn't God stop this? Why didn't God do this? Why isn't God healing? Why isn't God working? Why isn't God doing? And I always try to be as gracious as possible. But here's the deal. I don't think maybe you guys are here because this is the worst day of your life. And I want to tell you this so that you'll remember it on your worst day of your life. God was working. God was moving. You were just being disobedient. You didn't stay dressed for action. You didn't prepare for battle. And so when the battle came for you, the enemy ran over you quick because you didn't have the shield of faith up. You didn't have the helmet of salvation on. You didn't have the sword of the spirit to wield effectively. And you weren't praying at all times. Friends, prayer is so much about preparing yourself for when the hurricanes of life hit you. So that on those days, yes, you're still going to be sending out that SOS prayer. But you'll be able to go into a posture where the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit are being wielded. Number three, God uses action to answer prayers. God's going to use you as the answer to many of the prayers you are going to have. But it's through living in action, staying dressed for action, moving with the mission of Jesus. The Bible is filled with people who acted on their prayers and didn't just stay stagnant. I just want to give you a few examples of that verse. Verse 18, it says, stay alert for what? Perseverance. And I just want to give you a few narratives, not the prescriptions about prayer, the narratives where people prayed. In the Old Testament, Hannah prayed for a son, and then God gave her Samuel, and then she gave Samuel to the temple to serve. Daniel prayed and then faced the lion's den because of his prayer, but what prepared him for the action of the lion's den? His prayer. Ezra 
in the book of Nehemiah, prayed and then led the Israelites to the greatest revival the nation ever saw. David, there's multiple stories about this. David would pray and then run into battle. Jeremiah the prophet prayed and then Jeremiah endured persecution. Jesus prayed in the garden and then suffered on the cross for your salvation. Friends, if you span the four gospel accounts, you will see Jesus making margin over and over in his life to pray at all points of his life. He spent a significant amount. The text tells us he prayed in the morning. He prayed midday. He prayed at evening. He prayed at night, in the middle of the night sometimes. He would pause active things in his life to pray and then get active all over again. He lived a life of continual prayer during his earthly ministry. How do you think you're going to make it without prayer if Jesus didn't? Prayer prepares you for the warfare ahead. Verse 18 offers two terms for prayer. You know, both of them can be translated prayer. First is the one that they actually translate prayer. That's the general term for prayer. But then they rightly translate the second term, supplication. It's a term for prayer, but it is a specific type of prayer that once you have the full armor of God on is the assumption. Then you get into prayer because then you know what supplication to seek. Then you know what it is that you need to ask God for in your life. Those are the specific requests. Remember, this is about the totality of the Christian life. But note, he doesn't just say supplication, does he? He says it twice. If prayer is preparing me for the life that God has for me, it's going to involve other people, isn't it? He says supplication for the saints. In other words, if your prayer life doesn't involve you praying for the endurance of other people in their faith, then you're not making disciples. This is actually a call through your prayer life to biblical community with other believers. In other words, there are other people that are going to need you to pray for them. Are you prepared in the mind for that? Prayer prepares you for the real warfare ahead. My favorite quote on prayer isn't actually from a book on prayer. It's from a book on missions. It's from John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Look at what he says. He says, probably the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. We cannot know what prayer is for until we know that all of life is war. What he means is, if your prayers are just God give me, God do for me, God provide for me, if that's the totality of your prayer life, that's a domestic intercom. He's nothing more to you than a butler. But a wartime walkie-talkie comes in with the coordinates from the battlefield. God, I need you to work so we can advance the mission. Psalm 119, 105, the psalmist states this, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I know many of you struggle with prayer. 
There's two different words there, lamp and light. And sometimes you can wonder why two light sources would be mentioned. The first one, lamp, will only illuminate your feet. It's just the type of lantern that just is a small beam of light. And the psalmist says that so that you won't step on the wrong thing and bring injury to yourself. But then he says, a light to my path. That's different. That's a term for shining a light broadly so that you can see and move forward with your life. If all that you have is a lamp, you'll be tempted to stay still because you can't see through the dark. You'll say, well, I know my feet are good here, so they're going to stay right here. But that's not the life God has called any of you to, friends. He also gives you a light for the path ahead because he wants you to move forward and advance. And receiving God's word as a lamp and a light is such a vital aspect for prayer. Because Ephesians 16, what does it say? Praying at all times. Prayer is not a last resort, friend. Prayer is not only for emergency situations. Prayer is not only for when you or someone else is sick. Prayer is not reserved solely for when your kids get rebellious or when you need financial breakthrough. Prayer is for all circumstances and all times for the perseverance of the Christian life. Because if you don't get praying, what Paul is saying is you won't make it to the end as a Christian. Friend, if you want to prepare for the life that God has for you in Christ, pray as you act on God's word. A few application points this morning. First, seek a lifestyle that builds your faith. Prepare your mind. Stay dressed for action. Know the word. Because when you don't need God to act, you're not going to ask him to. Secondly, memorize scripture to learn to pray. There are many great books on prayer, and I've read many of them. I'm not discounting that at all. But the reason many of you don't know how to pray is simply because you don't know the word of God. There are times in my life when I don't know how to pray in a specific way for a specific thing, or I'm experiencing a moment of discouragement. And do you know what I do? Oftentimes I'll just pray the word of God. I'll pray the Psalms that I've memorized. I'll pray Romans 8 because it says that when I don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit grumbles with with grumblings too deep for words. And I just pray the scripture. Thirdly, express your faith through active prayer. You express your faith through prayer, but let them be prayers that move you to do something. Move you to act on your faith. Move you to take up the shield. Move you to put on the helmet. Move you to wield the sword. And then finally, act on your prayer to see God work through you. We all underestimate the potential that God has to work through us. And prayer is the environment where potential becomes reality. 